0: This is Victoria with Dream Dogs, and welcome to our How to Train Your Service Dog podcast. I do have a couple special guests with me today. I have Mark and Stephanie McCabe, and we are at the International Association of Canine Professionals annual conference. So we wanted to take a minute and sit down and talk with you guys about what Mark is doing, which is pretty pioneering in the world of dog training. So hi, Mark. Hi, Stephanie. Hi.
1: How are you? Doing good. Good. We just saw Bart Bologna walk by for those who know who he is. Nice. Having breakfast down in the uh, Bahamas restaurant. Nice. Yeah, you know you're in a good place when part of his name Bahamas and you know all that. Bermuda. Stuff. Bermuda. Yeah, is that what it was? Was it Bermuda? Bermuda. From? Well, whatever. Bermuda, Bahamas, whatever. <laughs> it's all the same. <laughs> <laughs> Such fun. <laughs> so I first met Mark
0: uh, back at my first IUCP conference, which was the one up in DC in Virginia. And. Uh, he was uh, helping teach a workshop the next month that I happened to go up to up in Maine. Uh-huh. And so we got to spend like a week together. And then Stephanie, I met, I think it was last conference, but we had met online before then. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So it's, it's a nice small world when it comes to dog training. And um, Mark actually got to present this year at conference. Yep. So it was really interesting hearing about what he's doing and getting to participate because anything I can get up and move around during a workshop <laughs> is the best.
1: <laughs> that was nice. Yeah, so. yeah well, it was fun. Well, so that was really fun actually meeting you. Um, well, I met you in D.C. but then really spending time up in Maine. Uh, so that was for one of Casey Covid certification camps and that was the beginning of me spending about 2 years basically running the training for her certification camps um and in her sats training and those were really focused on what we call perception modification and her um well her current view on perception modification is a bit different than mine um what she teaches in perception modification camps these days is what we call perception modification 2.0 in TBT so our training we call training between the ears or TBT and um, what's interesting is well first of all perception modification itself is pretty fascinating and it's really the idea of changing how people or animals feel about things and our talk that we did here at the conference was a subset of that that we call naming body parts. So literally teaching animals the name of their body parts and teaching them awareness of it, and there's some steps that we take that through um, that will prepare the dog for really anything in life, vet visits, crazy kids, you know, whatever it might be. But teaching the dogs the names of their body parts, telling them what body parts we're going to touch using what we call an intermediate and terminal bridge Uh, to facilitate that so they know what we're going to do, they know it's going to lead to a reward before it's finished, not just that they get rewarded when it's done. Um, And then we step into teaching them to touch objects by name so that then we could tell them that we would use an object of a particular name to touch a particular body part. Like, we're going to take this scope and we're going to put it in your ear. And the dog knows what it is that's going to happen, so he's not surprised. He knows from the very beginning that it's going to lead to a reward. It's not just a question of he has to hope it will and get there. If the dog interferes with the behavior along the way, the intermediate bridge allows us to mark for him that it's okay that he made a different choice, but that's going to get him off track from getting to the reward. So anyway, that's what we were doing with all that, and and we do what we call remote handling, where I would tell the dog what you're going to do with him. As opposed to what I'm going to do with them, which is really kind of neat. So, but anyway, that's all based on perception modification, which was uh, an idea that Casey Cover had. And she now teaches perception modification all based on what we call conditioned relaxation. So, a way of inducing relaxation and then exposing the dog to whatever the, the challenge stimulus is, helping it be calm through it to realize, oh, I used to be something I was afraid of. Now I don't need to be afraid of it. So um, what's interesting and <laughs> kind of entertaining is she actually used to teach. And and so what we call PM 2.0 perception modification that's guided by conditioned relaxation is a really really powerful thing. It's really cool. Um, but what would you say, Stephanie, that's maybe five or ten percent of the perception modification yeah, we do.
2: We do a lot more with food. Yeah. yeah.
1: So we do most of what we call Perception Modification 1.0 let me call it 1.0 because it actually is what Casey originally used to teach and what was kind of funny was um, I was in a house one day and um, she was really deep into you know working through the Perception Modification 2.0 protocols and whatnot and she had a dog that was really reactive to something and I did some perception modification 1.0 with her dog and it worked really well. And she was like, wow, that was amazing. And I said, you taught me that 15 years ago. (laughs) So, But I use it every day (coughs) and uh, it was just funny because, you know, she's a bit more like, like a theoretical physicist and I'm somebody who's out, you know, using that stuff every day. And so because she has really been focused on teaching this, you know, relatively new curriculum, she's kind of separated from that past thing, whereas like I use it every day. So to me, it was like the most obvious thing on earth. And actually, this would be an interesting uh, story for uh, people who are working with service dogs and whatnot. And this is actually why we get a lot of people with service dogs come to TBT events. Um, What happened was this dog was very reactive to a harmonica. She had this humongous harmonica sitting on the windowsill. And I don't know much about instruments, but I know that the size of a harmonica makes a different sound, you know, depending on how big it is. he can't
2: help himself. He has to touch interesting things.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so I, I saw it and I'm like, wow, look at that. And I reached out for it, you know, of course, intending to grab it and blow it and see what that sounds like, because it's like two or three times the size of any harmonica I've seen. And Casey goes, no, 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 don't touch. And I was like, oh, is it like a really valuable antique or something? And she says no. And she points at her dog and she goes, he'll go freaking crazy. And I said, really? (laughs) Guess what we're doing. (laughs) (laughs) So how long did it take to get to where I could play it in front of him?
2: Less than five minutes. Yeah. Very
1: cool. Um, So we did the, you know, the Perception Modification 1.0 with it. And, um... Yeah, within minutes, he's like looking at me while I'm honking on the thing, going like, okay, you're going to get to the yes in the food? (laughs) (laughs) So, but you know, what's really cool about that and and so much fun is it's such an efficient tool compared to what most people are working with. And most people are really stuck in a world for for things a dog doesn't like or has some reaction to. They're really stuck in a world of using what's called counter-conditioning. And desensitization which are not the same thing but always get lumped together and some protocols do entwine them some um, but they're, they're really really clunky tools and just as an example for most people to do counter conditioning with that harmonica would have taken at least some number of sessions over some number of days or, or maybe even weeks and then the really big problem is Uh, and this has been acknowledged to me by some of the top experts in the world about counter-conditioning is that that would tend to only help the dog with that stimulus the that harmonica and Maybe even only in the circumstances that he learned it that if you took him somewhere else uh, and there was another similar harmonica that he might still be reactive to it and we had a really uh, so what happens with perception modification is very different In perception modification, the dog learns more about the protocol than it does about the individual item. So the protocol helps the dog to change how it feels about the item and not just get to a neutral state where he's like, oh, I'm okay with it. Because we have a saying in TBT, which is, okay, sucks. Um, And the reason is, well, think about it. When somebody tells you about their dog's failing with something, right, like something overwhelmed them, they always say the dog was okay until. Yeah. Which means okay is always the last stop on the train before not okay anymore.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah.
1: and so many people, when they're trying to train dogs over challenge stimuli that they're having problems with, their goal is to get the dog okay. And our goal in TBT is to get the dog fabulous with the thing, what we refer to as overwhelming success. To where the dog isn't just like, oh, all right, it's okay if you do that. But the dog's like, "Hey, let's go play with the vacuum cleaner. I love when you vacuum the room, you know." Um, and that's such a different state of mind than like, "Okay, I can be on my bed over here and I can be quiet while you do that." But I still prefer you don't do that. <laughs> yes, yes. And go ahead.
2: Well, I was just going to say the other thing is, I mean, we go to a lot of uh, talks, uh, largely in the you know the purely positive community. Um, and and we've seen you know that behaviorists and stuff and they always put a limit to how much or how many problems um, desensitization and counter-conditioning can actually solve whereas with perception modification it's really limitless you know and actually you don't even have to go and try to solve you know supposing you have nine issues sometimes if you just solve three of them all the others get resolved on their own so it's not like you have to address one after right. another after another, until you get through all nine, and that 's what 's so powerful about perception well and this is this
1: is what came up in the Ian Dunbar story so one day uh, I was going in to work with a client, and just as I was going in, um, one of my favorite shows, not on anymore, but the Diane Rehm show on National Public Radio was coming on, and she had Ian Dunbar and on. She
2: had, Nick Dodman. No, Daudman. Nick Dodman. I'm sorry, it was
1: not... How did I get on Ian Dunbar? I don't know It was Nick Dodman. Th- thank God you're here. This story would make no sense whatsoever that way. Because um, Ian was definitely not retiring from Tufts no, Retinary no, School. No, no. <laughs> Nick was. So Nick Dodman is the author of uh, Dogs Who Love Too Much and a bunch of other books. And he actually was the progenitor of using Prozac with dogs for behavioral reasons. Okay. And... He's used all kinds of psychotropic medicines on on dogs um, and says that he has identified Tourette's syndrome in dogs and proven that by treating it with whatever the hell they treat Tourette's with in humans and it resolved the behavior. I have no idea what Tourette's looks like in dogs, but it creates some funny images. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so he was coming on the Diane Rehm show and this was like, Maybe the fifth time he had been on, and he was just retiring from uh, running the, the Tufts Veterinary School of Behavioral Medicine, uh, the behavioral clinic. And uh, so, anyway, so I wanted to hear it. Unfortunately, it was on serious radio, so I just put it on pause and I went into my appointment. And about 40 minutes into my appointment, my phone starts blowing up. I'm getting phone calls, I'm getting text messages, and whatnot, and I'm like, what the heck is going on? So I look at it, and they're all TBTE trainers. And I'm like, well, Nick must have said something interesting. So, of course, I'm done with the appointment. I'm dying to hear what's going on. So I listen to the thing. And this woman calls in. And she's got a dog that is reactive to, like, everything in her kitchen. And she's just going through this whole laundry list. And even, like, cracking an egg makes yeah, well. the dog blow up. Yeah. You know? So Nick says to her... He said, well, the only hope you're going to have is medicine. He said, because the gold standard for treating this type of thing would be counter conditioning and desensitization. But your dog has too many triggers. It would die of old age before you ever were able to treat all these. And so all of my TBT students are thinking, like, that's freaking crazy. Because they know if they started using perception modification and started working through that list... They'd never get through more than like ten things, if that, before the dog would just not care about was going on. The care would be, it would care. It'd be happy, you know. But she's like, oh, the blender does it, pulling open the drawers, moving the silverware, you know, et cetera, et cetera. <coughs> and um, so that was a really good example of it. And then we were at a conference, and uh, Pat Miller was talking. And generally, in the purely positive community, she's considered kind of the the big guru of aggressive dogs, and she was talking about when she has people bring dogs to her, one of the things she does is she gives them a a form to fill out, and they have to list all of the dog's triggers, so every individual thing that the dog reacts to, and she says, we'll typically have people have a list of, oh, 30 or 40 triggers, and so then, what we want to do is we want to work through them because we could never work that many triggers. We're going to divide these into three categories. She said, the first is things that we really don't need to worry about. We could just use management. So you know, maybe your dog barks at the garbage men when they come, but just don't have it out in the yard when on the garb- garbage day. on garbage day when the garbage men come. And that's easy enough and all. And she said. Um, Oh, so I think actually one group was... Hey there. One group was things we don't have to worry about at all. We just don't do anything. Then the group was the things we do management with. Okay. Right? So these are things we have to actually manage. And um, and then we have to figure out a group, these are the things we really have to change. And she says, so we try to get that to five, six, maybe eight things. You know, that's a, that's a manageable number to work through with counter-conditioning and all. And we do that. And, of course, Stephanie's with me, and she's watching this, and she's like... That uh, doesn't sound anything like what you do, you know, and I'm like no my goal is to get the dog over reactivity period
2: Yeah, so you remember know? the dog Winston that we worked with Winston was a cute little schnauzer or, Schnoodle or something And he was oh, I was picturing Winston
1: p- that big. Oh, you didn't see Winston in Texas no. the, 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 oh, no. the English bulldog So <laughs> anyway, so Winston's
2: this cute little thing, but super reactive to everything and I think we were two sessions in when the owner told you that now she can actually. We did nothing with the hair dryer, but Winston used oh, to go yeah, nuts yeah. when she would dry her hair. And I remember she sent you a note and said, mm. "I was able to dry my hair today, and Winston just hung out and whatever, and you did nothing." We at did all. nothing with that.
1: We had just taught him. Uh
2: just some relaxation protocols I think. Well we
1: had done perception modification I'm trying to think what the heck it was towards but it was really really simple things. Yes, So it was we, great
2: I, that it just translated over to something else. Oh yeah used to so one of the really this.
1: big things that we do is we focus a lot on what we call a grade school model and the grade school model is uh, an idea that can and, and should apply to any training and it does apply to all good training. Um, But it's the same idea that we use in teaching kids math or teaching somebody to drive a car, which is you begin with the very easiest things. And when the child or the student does really well at one level, you move to the next. And um, so very commonly, well universally, when we go into work with people, um, they're kind of surprised in the beginning that we're not doing anything about what they think their real problem is. Because our view is, the real problem is the underlying way of thinking and the basis of the behavior, not the particular thing the dog is responding to. And so, we're always trying to find what's kindergarten, what's first grade, what's the easiest examples of this type of problem that we can start working on and changing. And of course, we do, we're doing that for the people as well as the dogs, because they need to start where it's easy too. And so many trainers are like, well, if your dog's dog reactive, we've got to go work around dogs right away. It's like, well, using what skills? Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. (laughs) What what have you taught the dog that's going to help him to deal with this better? And, you know, I like to tell the story that, um, you know, if you're teaching somebody to drive a car, unless you're my mother, you don't teach them to drive at 75 miles an hour on the highway. (laughs) You know, I was literally driving along with my mother one day. She's got this big four-door Lincoln Town car going down this highway with a speed limit at 75 miles an hour. And all of a sudden, she pulls over like there's some kind of emergency. And we're like in the middle of nowhere. And I was like, what are we doing? She goes, oh, I just remembered. You got your learner's permit yesterday. You're driving. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Ended up working out okay, you know, which is not good. And the only thing that really got us through us was, unbeknownst to her, I had driven illegally a couple times, <laughs> but but only up to, like, 35 miles an hour, you know, But so at least I wasn't starting at zero, and I was, you know, I was freaked out, and I'm thinking, does this crazy woman not know her butt's going to be in the same car as me, you know? <laughs> and so I was, you know, one of the reasons the grade school level model is important is I was completely overloaded. I mean, just drive the car was at least twice as big as the car I had driven illegally a couple of times. And (coughs) we're on a road with a speed limit 75, so it means nobody's doing 75, you know, people doing 85, 90. And a huge car, just driving at that speed was incredibly overwhelming, and I had no brain space to look in the mirrors and see what else was going on. So I really quickly came up with a strategy which was, well, if I just drive faster than everybody else, I don't have to know what's going on in the mirrors. And my mother was fine with that. She's just sitting there smoking a cigarette, you know, have a good time. Um, It was kind of crazy. But trainers very often essentially do this to dogs or to their owners. They start at too high a level, too much difficulty with the dog. They put the people in situations they can't be really successful with. They put the dogs in situations they can't be really successful with. And especially balanced trainers will do this trying to set the dog up to correct it. I want you to do your bad behavior so I can correct you. And what we're really trying to do, especially when we're working in perception modification, is ideally never get the bad behavior. Now, of course, it doesn't always work out that way. In fact, it never completely works out that way. But we always say when we're doing the training well, it's boring. It's
2: really boring. Because nothing
1: nothing bad happens, you know? And... (laughs) and one of the uh, chief complaints that balance trainers have with purely positive trainers is they say purely positive training doesn't work in the real world and the reason they say that is because in reward based training you have to follow the grade school model as soon as the dog gets too excited it won't be able to engage the rewards anymore but that's not a permanent problem That's no different than when you're potty training a kid. Initially, they're gonna poop in their diapers because that's what's appropriate at that level. That's what they're ready for. And as you start to advance properly, they get to where maybe they tell you they pooped in their diapers. You know, and you're like, hey, that's a great thing. Now, if your 12-year-old was telling you with a big smile on the face they just crapped their pants, you know, you're gonna call the local behavioral institute, right? Right. Um, But if a kid is at the appropriate level in doing that that's a great thing when they tell you because that's a step forward and you know that eventually they're going to tell you before they poop their pants like mommy I gotta go to the bathroom and they'll get there and it and it develops that way so in most reward-based training the training gets kind of blown up and ruined when the level gets too difficult when they're not ready for it and that happens in real life You, you know you you can be doing the most laboratory like work you want And then you go out in the world and stuff happens. (coughs) So we have a a way of teaching people how to deal with that where that doesn't become so unproductive to the training. But um, the idea that you're going to take the dog out and set it up to misbehave so that you can punish it to tell it not to do that anymore is not really confidence building for a lot of dogs. Correct. You know, It's like, oh, goody, we're going to go out and look at the ice cream truck so you can whack me in the head get me to stop doing it. And I'm not at all anti-punishment. I think the idea of being purely anti-punishment is absurd. (coughs) But I think that setting yourselves up to punish the dog as a routine way of training is not a very good way of training. And particularly because we're always looking at the emotional state of the dog. And if you think about a service dog, the most important thing in the universe for that dog, from my perspective is that the dog can be comfortable and feel secure with everything. Yes. Because they're going to experience everything. Yes. I mean, there's, there's no, you're not going to go, oh, well, I'm not going to take the, my service dog to the football game today because that might be a bit much. If you need the dog, you need the dog. And, and you know, and you take dogs on airplanes and stuff.
0: And you can't so, prep for the airplanes ahead of time, usually. Well, so this is, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. So, th- so this is one of the really neat things is, so we use a process we call melting a mountain which is the idea if you picture like a you know, a mountain and the top of that mountain is whatever the dog's biggest challenges are. And this could be challenges for a dog who's reactive or something, or it could be just we've chosen a really good candidate as a service dog. He's a really great dog, but these are some of the difficulties the dog's gonna have to deal with and these are the biggest things. And of course, you know, being on a plane is a big one. How do you replicate that in your house. You can do some things spatially to teach the dog to get comfortable in the spaces and all. Yep. But, you know, most of us don't have access to an airplane, um, especially with the motors running
0: and, right, and, take <laughs> and, off. and everything yeah. else.
1: So what we do in the idea of melting the mountain is that we look at that on a scale from one to 10 with the most difficult things being a 10. And what we want to start with is things that are a one and what we try to look for in doing that work is what is the lowest intensity example of something that presents a similar challenge as whatever 10 might be for the dog and so what's interesting with that is that first of all it's challenging as a trainer to figure out the connections between those things so one example that comes up fairly often is when we're working with dogs with separation anxiety. Um, you know, a lot of times you're sitting there in the living room talking to the person and the dog is trying to, you know, crawl into their kidney. Um, you know, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's on top of them, it's getting as close as it can and and whatnot, and every moment nudging the owner for attention and whatnot. And a lot of trainers will look at that and correctly see that that is related to the separation anxiety problem but then their diagnosis is is that they have to do a dogectomy. You know, we have to cut the dog off from you. You have to stop loving the dog. You have to stop doing this. And our perspective would be, let's play a game where we could teach the owner to get the dog to want to be sitting 12 inches away from them. And that would be like a level one thing for the dog relative to a separation anxiety. And it would be a level one uh, exercise for the owner. It's super easy to do. We do that f- through free shaping. <coughs> <Excuse> me. <coughs> and what'll happen is, we can instead of saying to the person, you know, we're going to do this dogectomy and you're going to have to stop loving your dog, hey, let's just take ten minutes once or twice a day and play this game, and teach the dog that you know it would rather be here than here, not because it's getting punished, but that's where the rewards are happening. And what's interesting is, is the person gets changed by it too because all of a sudden like well that's really cool Muffy can sit there and be happy yes right not be stressed not be like so it's not a deprivation thing for either of them it's saying hey we both could be a little bit apart from each other and then we might say well let's see if she could do that on the floor or let's see if she could do it on the other chair or whatever well let's see if she could remain calm there as you get up and leave the room And we use tools like the Intermediate Bridge to help the dog be calm, let it know, hey, we're getting up, but us getting up is part of the process of you getting the reward. And so this isn't part of the process of us separating from you and you're going to die, but this is actually the thing that leads to you getting rewarded. And pretty quickly they're like, hey, you're going to get up and walk across the room again? That was cool. So in the melting the mountain, you know what happens is it makes it really easy, especially like for you, Um, You know, when you're training service dogs, you're working with people over a long arc of time and you're trying to organize a global plan, you know, how are we going to work through this. Um, It really allows you to structure every level of training in a way that both the owner and the dog feel really, really good about it. And that's not to say that there's never any rough spots or anything else. I mean, it's the real world. Of course there are. Um, But it's a really neat way of approaching it. And one of the nice things that we see about it again and again not just ourselves in the training that we do, but through the other TBT trainers, is we constantly get feedback from people that their owner compliance has gone up tremendously since they started doing TBT.
0: Nice. Well, they Because wanna, they like what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. You it know, sounds like it's, a lot more fun than you know, it, setting them up for failure and you know, oh, working yeah. that
1: through. Well, <laughs> even things, you know, like one of the things that we do is, so we want to we teach dogs what we call free behavior. And so free behavior is the idea of basically what would the dog do if you weren't there? And so much of training is about telling the dog what to do all the time.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's true whether it's force-based training or it's reward-based training. And what we want to do as much as possible, and this is like awesome when you can do this with service dogs and other dogs that you know, have a purposeful function, is we really want to teach the dog be responsible for its own work and its own behavior and as much as possible to want to do those things for its own reasons not because we tell it it's a good dog or whatever else but that's what it likes to do so one of the frustrations I have these days is you know the big trend over the last five years or so has been really emphasizing teaching dogs to go to place and that's the way to deal with every challenging situation that comes up go to place if you're on place, you can't be freaking out over the vacuum cleaner, which is not true, you can be. Um, if you're on place, you can't be running up to the door and barking and carrying on when people are there. You know, If you're on place while the kids are running around playing, you can't be a problem to that. And I get a big part of the reason why people teach it. You can go into a home, you can make this change fairly quickly with this one thing, and it seems to address a lot of problems. But I say seems to, because it doesn't actually teach the dog how to deal with any of those things. Take the bed away, and the dog has no more mechanism to deal with that stuff than it did before. Now, if you have an easy or a moderately difficult dog, if you just did a protocol like that for two or three months and then stopped doing the bed, there's really good chances the dog would be pretty good. Um, but, but you still didn't actually teach it how to be good. Yeah. You know, what you did is you taught it how to calm down some. Of course, we would just directly teach it to calm down. But one of the things that we do as an example is when dogs have challenges with visitors coming in and whatnot, is we'll teach the dog a boundary that it has to stay out of, so a boundary around the door. So people can come in. In our model, in the beginning, the dog can bark, carry on, do anything it wants. We don't care. As long as it stays outside of that boundary, it's not going to be able to negatively impact The people coming in can't jump on them, can't bite them, can't do whatever else. And then what we'll do, which we've already taught in other circumstances, is use a process called differential reinforcement for relaxation to reward the dog for every step down it takes in energy. And so, of course, if you think of this in the extreme, if you had some people come in and you had that bubble around them and you just stayed there for half an hour. Let's say we would never do this. wouldn't take that long. But just to think about it, if you stayed there for half an hour, well, the dog can't really bark and carry on for the whole freaking half an hour. And, right? you know, at some point he's going to go, well, all right, well, you guys are boring. I'm going to go do something else. Well, what happens on a much more granular level is over very short periods of time, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, a minute or two, the dog starts to lose energy. And... Every step down he takes, we terminally bridge yes, and we reward the dog. And we've already done this in other areas of the dog's life, so the dog understands like, oh, you're walking me down the emotional stairs, aren't you? Hey, let me hurry up and get to the bottom one. And one of the really cool things is, and this is such a great idea for service dogs, is our goal is to make the behavior that we're trying to get eventually either be self-reinforcing, or naturally reinforced by life. So one of the things uh, Ivan Balabanov was talking about yesterday was, he said it doesn't matter if you train a dog using punishment and negative reinforcement or positive reinforcement and negative punishment, as soon as you stop giving the reinforcement or punishment, the behavior will go away. And that's a huge problem in training. And what we find again and again is that doesn't happen in TBT. I mean, we work with dogs all the time that months later the people aren't carrying around a pouch of food or anything else and the yeah. dogs are still doing the behavior, yeah. right? So, an example of how this would happen in the differential reinforcement with the boundaries there is what we do is when the dog gets relaxed enough, then we invite it to come see the people. And of course, every dog is curious. It doesn't matter if you have a dog who's acting like Cujo and like, i got to kill these people, they're invading the castle and whatnot... He wants to get to him and he wants to sniff him. And so we make that a reward for becoming calm enough. So we help the dog get calm with the food. So in the early part of the training process, you need the food. But because the end reward the dog's working for is the access to the people, and you teach what we call cognitive emotional control, so the dog becomes aware of his emotional state and he realizes, oh, the thing that gets me in the castle is when I get calm enough. Not when I sit, not when I down, not when I... But what's my emotional level? And so what's cool is the dog starts actually working to get himself calm because he wants to get access to the people. And then for the rest of his life, that's the reinforcer. And what happens relatively quickly, depends how difficult the dog is, is that the dog just learns to zoom to calmness and do that so he can greet the people Pretty soon, he's not zooming to get to calmness. That's just his way of being. He just is. And to me, I think this is particularly important when we're working with service dogs. Because one of the things that I see as a big challenge is you have somebody that has some kind of physical or emotional need that they need help for. And the dog is there to help them. And we see so many dogs that are service dogs, we're being trained as service dogs, Challenging pets. Yes. And it's like the last thing somebody who needs this dog as an adjunct for needs is a challenging pet that they're taking out in public yes yes well do
0: you know how many get washed out and so sometimes it's easy things that if they would work with a professional trainer we could yes. take care I mean sometimes dogs just not gonna make it as a service dog <laughs> but so many of them and then like these people have put in all this time of training yeah. and I'm like if you would just reach out and work with somebody yeah. it doesn't have to be me yeah. it could be you yeah, right? someb- yeah somebody yeah <laughs> but but you know somebody who knows what they're doing or they work mm-hmm. with trainers who don't know yeah. and so they, they're the trainers who you know set the dogs up for failure who are like I don't know what to do do, you know, you, you can never do that. You must manage it the whole rest of the dog's life. And yes. it's like, mm, yeah. that's not often that that happens.
1: Well, and you know, a big difference in our approach versus most things is one of the things we see here It's kind of neat at the IACP is a lot of people bring their dogs. And we go to some purely positive conventions, and you're not allowed to bring dogs to them unless it is a service dog. Um, and I'm quite convinced the reason is, is, and because I've been around a lot of these people, that their dogs aren't all that well-behaved, and the idea of bringing them all together isn't such a joyful thought. But as much as it's a compliment to the people here at the ICP that you know, we, we see all these dogs together and we're not seeing problems and whatnot, I think the actual training stinks. And one of the reasons is, is what we'll see just again and again and again and again is First of all, dogs walking around on pinch collars, slip leads, etc., which I don't love any of those things, but I'm not against people using them as an adjunct to training. <clears throat> but at some point, the dog should be trained, not training. Yes. <clears throat> and at some point, he shouldn't need to get jerked with a pinch collar every time you're going to turn and move or every time you're telling him to sit or whatever. He should be able to do it. And, of course, my background and the way I got started in sports was competitive training and what we called then and now IPO, uh, um, um, and, you know, trained meant you could take the dog out in a trial with no leash and you walk through all kinds of distractions and you do whatever and the dog can do the work. Now a lot of those dogs, especially when I was starting early on, got endless punishment and negative reinforcement. And you would just take a break from it for a day for the trial, you know, to see if the dog could make it through for a day. <clears throat> but, you know, what my training evolved to was uh, a perspective where my dog's ready to trial when I could take him out every day of the week and I could do the work with no correction.
0: Okay. Because the dog knows yeah. how to do it. Right?
1: Yeah. Um, and it doesn't mean I'm going to get a perfect score, but it means my dog knows how to do this, can do it very, very well. And... It wants to do this work. It's not like, oh my gosh, how can I escape getting corrected? But when, I, when we see this, one of the things that really drives me crazy is, again and again, you'll see people who will allow their dog to sniff another dog or sniff another person, and at the moment the dog does it, they punish the dog. They'll say, leave it and make a correction. And what we would do is we would terminally bridge the dog when it did that. And we'd say yes. Yes. It's a good, normal social behavior. Yes. You're in a crowd of people. People are gonna be within inches of your dog. Do you really expect it to not sniff them, to not check them out at all? And if you really do, correct them as they go to do it, not after they've done it,
2: mm-hmm. you know? Well, and, and you do very much the same thing with you know food on coffee tables and stuff like that. A dog can just reach over and sniff. Dog cannot grab the food, but can mm-hmm. at least explore and be interested in. Oh yeah! And I, I mean, you, you don't want to take away <coughs> from a dog its very ability to experience life. And,
1: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And and how stressed would a person be if you told them they couldn't look at other people, and every time they did, you slapped them in the face? Oh
2: yeah, it was terrible. Right.
1: And you know, so one of the things I think it's important to think of when we have a service dog, the very work that it has to do puts a certain burden on it a certain amount of stress and it's great the dogs are willing to do it and it's a huge help to us and it's really neat but it's a job and it creates a certain level of stress and then all of the environmental things the dog has to deal with create a certain amount of stress and of course the better the dog we choose up front the less stressed it is by those things Um, but there's still always some why do we want to add stress to it By slapping it in the face every time it does the most natural thing, which is sniff something, check something out. And to me, I always imagine this like having a 12-year-old boy who's walking around someplace and there's a bunch of naked women around, and you keep telling them, don't look at the naked women. What the hell are the chances that's ever going to be successful, right? And how much pressure or punishment would you have to use towards that child to really get him to not look at them? And guess what, you tell him to not look at them, what do you think he's thinking about? Yep. Why not just tell the dog, hey, this is the world, it's okay. It doesn't mean your dog can leave you and go three feet over to say hi to somebody, but if you're gonna put the dog in a position where somebody's literally gonna be six inches from it, or 10 inches, and you're gonna put it that close to another dog, praise it for doing a good job of checking that thing out in a nice, calm, sociable way. And doing that also sets you up for another process we use, that's a lot of fun, which is called punishment by reward. If you really don't want the dog to do that, we can show you how to punish it with rewards. And what's cool when you do that is the dog will stop doing the behavior you don't want but it'll be calm and happy. It won't be like, oh, geez, I better not do that thing.
0: Okay.
1: Um. So it's very. We have a video so, on our YouTube channel uh, about okay. that. So
0: I have a client right now who we're working with, and her dog is going after lizards and birds mm-hmm. and other dogs It's a service dog so in training. And she work well, service dog, but she works on a um, on a college campus. So that she goes through this square, the dog <laughs> always knows. And I told her, I said, because I remember Casey saying about. Like, I don't know if it was bunnies or whatever that, you know, it was, you know, like, let's look for them and see if we can spot them first. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah. Right. And so I'm like,
0: try that. And she says, what step am I missing here? And I'm like, just just do it and see, see who, you know, if you can get it. If she looks at it, you know, you can, you know, click and treat her. You can tell her she's a good girl for noticing it. Yeah. Because she's like, nothing else that I'm doing is working. She goes, I think this sounds crazy, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but I'm going to try it. So I'm like, videotape it. So I have to make sure she listens to this.
1: Oh, yeah, so if you go to our YouTube channel, if you just put in TBTE in the, in the search, you'll come up with it. And we have a video on punishment by reward. And in that case, we're talking about using it for a dog that's peeing in the house. Um, but it's a, it's a really neat idea. And what's cool is it can be amazingly effective. It's not always effective for everything, but it can be amazingly effective. It's, it's fun. I mean, owners get a kick out of it when they start figuring out how to do it. And it makes a really pleasant emotional change in the dog. Um, now, it's not exactly the same thing, but to give you an example of kind of like what Casey was talking about, I had a client who literally had broken her arm because her dog dragged her down because it's so crazy about chasing squirrels and bunnies and yeah. uh, groundhogs. And she lives in this little like, Disney World-like community in Gaithersburg, Maryland. And they have these little tiny front yards that the rabbits love. Everybody plants the heck out of these little tiny front yards and so there's rabbits in all of them and they have these uh, oak, oak and maple trees lining the streets and the squirrels are just thrilled. They can even cross the street from one tree to the other. They don't have to come down. And uh, anyway, so her dog's pretty predacious obviously if it broke her arm dragging her down and we taught a dog that it can hunt as much as it wants if it can do it at one-third speed. Okay. and so it's hilarious we'll go you want to go find a squirrel and the dog will go yeah and what the dog used to do is it would it would drag her to a tree because the squirrel had gone up it and screech like it was being torn apart leaping up and down at the bottom of the tree and whatnot. you know just kind of classic hunting behavior right and uh anyway um what's hilarious when we taught the dog to do this at one third speed um and that was just because that's what we could trot along at pretty easily not really be running um We'll say, you know, you want to go find a squirrel? And the dog will, like, look at us, like, yeah. And then we'll look around, and it'll see one. You go, oh, you see the squirrel? Let's go see it. And so we kind of, you know, do a slow jog towards it and all. The dog's running, and it's all happy. What's funny is, when it gets to the tree, it will check and look at it. We go, yep, that's the squirrel. And on its own, it turns away from the tree, where it used to just freak the hell out. Now it wants to go find another squirrel. Mm-hmm. Right? But um, it's like it still enjoys the thing, but it's not this freak-out panic attack and whatnot. And to me, this is a really important thing. The more a dog is going to be in the world, the more the dog should feel comfortable and natural with it. Not just telling it, no, don't do that, no, don't do that, no, don't do that. And, you know, think about it. If you and Richard are walking through the airport and somebody walks by in some crazy getup, you don't slap Richard for working at, looking at it. You go. Did you see the person in that outfit? And you both looked. I mean, that's what normal life is. Why do we expect a dog to see or smell something that's really exciting or unusual and go like, no, I don't see that. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like the hardest way possible to to train the dog and manage the dog. And if the dog, you know, like if I had a dog that's really got problems with bunnies and stuff, I want to go find bunnies because I want to get the dog to where it's like, yeah, I can find bunnies, and it's interesting, but it doesn't, like, it's flip me out. It's not the forbidden thing yeah. that you have
0: to be so sneaky and so fast so he can get away from you to go do oh, it. Oh, God,
1: yeah. Because then again, too, th- you know, think how that adds to, to the burden of the person who has this dog as an aid to them. Yeah. They're walking around worrying, are they going to find a bunny? Are they going to go someplace that there's squirrels? Is, is somebody <laughs> going to come by in a noisy wheelchair, or, you know? And what if that, he does, time?
0: so you're out with them, and you're not in a wheelchair. You know mm-hmm. your dog's not used to it because you haven't done that because you don't have access to a wheelchair. Yeah. And your dog's like, Oh, I don't know what that scary thing is because that person is sitting down and moving and coming towards <laughs> me." Right. So you know that's. Oh, absolutely. This stuff comes in handy.
1: Oh yeah, we were uh, we were at the uh, Florida Aquarium the other day, and there's this poor guy. I mean, he he had some serious physical problems and. He's in a wheelchair where he's kind of leaning back. It's an electric wheelchair. He controls it with his chin. He's got a breathing tube, and the breathing apparatus is making some sound and all. There's no way in hell you could ever go get that, that thing to train with, you know, that right. whole thing. Right, yeah, yeah. So this is where the perception modification is so helpful and the idea that the dog learns about the process more than the individual item. Yes. Because we could instantly start talking to the dog about that item and intermediate bridging him. And one of the things, as I talked about in our session the other day, that the intermediate bridge does, is it becomes a safety signal to the dog. So it tells the dog, we see that thing, it has its own unique name, we know it stands out from other things, and you're safe. And the dog will go, oh, okay, that's cool. So we teach them that process, but once we've taught them that, what the thing is they're safe from doesn't really matter. Yeah. They plug it in just the same, and like, Oh, okay, yeah, you know that's another thing <laughs> so um, so it's fun, but it's it's really neat, and one of the very cool things about that relative to service dog work is kind of like training a dog for i p o or you know any of the a k c obedience kind of things and all it's a long enough process as it is, you know you want to do things that shorten the process and that are going to make that as quick as possible. So what happens in TBT is we do a tremendous amount of what we call parallel processing. So as Stephanie was mentioning earlier, the work that you're doing on one problem is already setting the groundwork to solve another problem or may even have solved it without you ever having worked on it. So what's cool is you get a very compact set of tools that any situation you go into, you can use those tools to work with it. So you know, especially when you're talking about uh, owners who have their own dog or they're training their own dog, they already have the need, they already have the challenge that they have. How much better is it if the dog could really work for them three months from now or six months from now as opposed to a year from now or two years yes. from now? <laughs> yes,
0: and then sometimes we start them as puppies and sometimes they're adults, and mm-hmm. they have the baggage,
1: yeah. You yeah. know,
0: and then sometimes they're not just, you know, two year old adults, but they're like maybe four or five year old adults. Yeah. And we need to fine tune some stuff. And that's, you know, time is really of the essence there. Yeah. Like the faster we can do this, the faster the dog can work or be out in public safer. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. and it's not just, you know, we do the pets, we do the behavior issues too. So it's something yeah. like we use it all the time. And, and I now have to go to one of your workshops on your <laughs> list whatever you're going to be there. <laughs> Yay, mission accomplished. <laughs> right. Um, but, but it's something I love what you've done from what I'm understanding with Casey's mm-hmm. stuff, which has made it not only much more user-friendly, mm-hmm. but, you know, a systematized way of doing it instead of, you know, this is everything and you can pick and choose. That gets to be a little bit overwhelming. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, you know, and I like your, you know, you melt the mountain and that you have these things that hopefully people will remember when they're out. Oh, yeah. And not, you know, we, we went to your, um, your, your speech. And you had the, like, let's get up and do this. And you had it, you know, written out. There were six steps that we all mm-hmm. did. Yeah. Uh, so it was very much, you know, whenever you are working with it, like, you remember like, okay, what were those six steps that we did? Yeah. And when, one of my favorite things was after one of your trainers showed the first two people, mm-hmm. then she asked them, do you guys want to show the next ones? Yes. So it's not only the learning it, but it's the teaching it. And if you yeah. can do that, if you can do both the learning it and the teaching it, yeah. yes. it's so much more a part of it instead of just, you know, following those directions. Oh, yeah.
2: So um, one of the um, neat things about TBT, I think, is that you could pick off the menu, but the but the things that we teach at our seminars are exactly the things that we use to solve every single behavioral issue, from mm. the fearful dog to the aggressive dog, and it's just nice to have this reliable set of tools. We're not we're not really about like having a toolkit where we just for this dog we're going to do this (laughs) and for this dog we're going to... No, we focus on helping dogs relax generally so that they can be better with the world. And then we focus on, you know, helping them feel good about the things they don't feel good about. And then setting some parameters for them in life but that really is our toolkit mm-hmm. you know and people can pick and choose if they want but it's funny because the people who stay with tbte and really embrace it just end up paring things down to exactly like the five mm-hmm. or six things that we do and they have a lot of success with it so.
1: well that's the funny thing so i had a, a student one day with professional student uh call me up and um you know one of the things we hear all the time in dog training is that there's no cookie cutter formula, dogs are all different, you need different approaches for every dog, and we absolutely do not. I work with the most difficult dogs in my area. There are very, very few dogs that I ever work with that haven't already worked with three or four trainers or been medicated. Yeah. Um, they took the dog to the vet to have it put down and they got my name or whatever, and I do the same techniques with all of the dogs. Now, of course, you're varying it somewhat to the dog in front of you. I think of it kind of like you know, season to taste, but we literally are using exactly the same tools and the same overall process with every dog. So anyway, this, this one uh, professional client of mine called me up and um, he had the most predacious dog I've seen in a long, long time, and it was predacious for dogs. So it wasn't just reactive, and it didn't just want to uh, fight. It wanted to go murder dogs and had. Um, And so he's sitting there, he goes, so I'm just sitting here, and I'm going through this stuff. And I think this was maybe after the third TBT seminary had come to. And he goes, so you do this, 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 and this, right? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, and you do that with every dog? I'm like, yeah. He goes, so you do that with really aggressive dogs, right? Like mine. like, Yeah. And you do those same things with really, really nervous, scared dogs and all. I'm like, yeah. And he goes, And that's all you do? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Pretty much. We plug that into the grade school model and we do it in first grade and second grade and third grade. And he's like, Okay, I gotta think about this for a while. Bye. <laughs> 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 and it's funny because uh, next to, to Stephanie, and myself, he's been to more TBT events than anyone, I think he's up to like 17, Um, and if he's listening, hi Bob, he just moved to Thailand actually, so he's going to be introducing TBT to Thailand, Um, but uh, um, it was really funny to see as as he got more involved in the system that now he would be telling other people, no, this is all you do, you don't need to do other things, Mm -hmm. you just do these things, you know, and... One of the things that we really like about that, in the beginning, when somebody comes to their first TBT workshop, well, a lot of people will say, like, my brain was bleeding, or, you know, my head hurt, you know, whatever, because all these new ideas being thrown at them. But what they realize is they come to subsequent seminars, and it doesn't all sound so strange anymore, and the words aren't, you know, word salad to them and everything, is how incredibly simple it is. Yeah. And that the same answers keep coming up again and again, you know, to the same things. Well,
2: and we, we chuckle all the time because someone will say, well, what do I do if it's a cat? Well, what do I do if it's a big dog? Well, what um. do I do if it's a little dog? What if it's a chainsaw? Well, what if it's a cow? <laughs> and we're like, yeah, it's all the same. Yeah. yeah. Just, and, and, and we always chuckle because I always say, yeah, we're just not that creative. It's yeah. the
1: same thing. <laughs> yeah. okay. Well, you know, it was funny because this was actually a principle that I learned in my competitive training and i was at a, a national event one time and that's uh, so kind of fun because you get to hang out and talk with all the other people who are competing at that level and stuff and there was this guy who had recently gone to an international championship and had a dog that was a fabulous tracking dog had scores of 98 99 100 you know and whatnot um, and very consistent and the dog failed tracking And so he's telling the story about um, how it failed the tracking. And uh, he says, um, hello. He said, um, well, what happened was, where they laid the track, the track went straight towards a fence of a pasture. And um, then it took a right turn. And he said, when we actually went to do the track, he said there was about 40 or 50 cows on the other side of the fence and what happened was you know my dog goes down and he got to the corner and he looks up and he sees the cows and he says no, I've never tracked around cows before and uh, he says uh, the dog looks at him and he's you know just a little curious or whatever no big deal but you lose a point or two for that because the dog's broken the track so then the dog takes the right and he starts going down the track and apparently all 40 or 50 cows decide they're going to take a walk with him
0: yeah. so they're
1: like 40, 50 feet away you know, because they have to be uh, the track has to be far enough from the fence but so now he's got his owner tracking with him a judge, a steward and 40 or 50 cows <laughs> and the dog's like walking along tracking and he looks up and he's like what are they doing, you know, and he tracks a little more and he's he, well, anyway, he gets so distracted he ends up losing the track and he fails so the guy says, well what are you going to do you know, you can't prepare for that and in my inimitable, supportive way, without thinking, I immediately said, well, of course you can. And he looks at me, he goes, what are you, go out and get a whole bunch of cows to track around? And I said, no. I said, do you have roads where you live? And he's like, yeah. Why? I said, do you ever track your dog down the middle of the highway? And he looks at me like that was the stupidest freaking idea I ever heard in his life. And he goes, no, why would I do that? I said, well, I'm pretty sure if your dog can track with 18-wheelers driving by and stuff that, you know, a couple cows aren't going to bother it that much. (laughs) So this is really an idea that we use a lot. But he was like, well, if my dog's going to get distracted by the cows, it's going to get distracted by the trucks. And I said, yeah. So how long have you been tracking your dog? He said, five years. I said, do you use a lot of food on your tracks when you track your dog anymore? He says, no, just at articles, you know, so when the dog gets them. I said, okay, did you use a lot of food when you were first training your dog to track? He says, oh yeah, I was taking every footstep. I said, good. Do a track somewhere near a highway that's not terribly close to it, and track your dog like you did when he was a puppy. Put food in every footstep. You think he could do that? And he's like, of course he could do that. I said, good. Then you move it closer to the highway. And once he has no problem tracking for a boatload of food near the highway, You do the exact same process you did out in your pristine tracking area. You start putting less and less food down. I said, so, I said, you're kind of like Dorothy. You know, you have the way home all along.
0: Right.
1: Just don't know it. Take exactly the same process you did before, but now you're going to repeat it. You're going to go back to your early grade school level, which is kindergarten to first grade, as you raise the level of difficulty. When that's not difficult to the dog anymore, you don't give it as much help. You let it do that same thing with less help. It succeeds, gets rewarded, you move on. So it's a fun process, and it's really easy to do. Um, but what's neat about that is is when you teach these principles, and what we're really seeing a lot in our TBT trainers, and Sonia here is one of them. Hi, Sonia. Hello. Um, she's from uh, Toronto, Canada area. Um, what's really neat is that you teach these people these skills and this way of thinking, and they really quickly become independent with them. It's like they now know how to solve problems for themselves because usually, as dog trainers, we're acting like there's a different answer to every freaking problem and everything yeah. on the planet, right? And what happens really quickly is the people can solve problems on their own, and that's what Stephanie was talking about earlier with the woman with the hair dryer. Yeah, because she was telling me in our first session, you know, I'm like, Oh, so what kind of things really bother the dog and all? And she's like, Oh, the hair dryer is like the worst the hair dryer or the people mowing outside, and uh, so when she told me after week two that you know the dog was great with the hairdryer i'm thinking oh my god you just jumped the grade school level by about five levels but i asked her what she actually did and she's like oh yeah i named it i intermediate bridge i turned it on i terminally bridged on i'm like okay we're not gonna need a whole lot of sessions are we right? <laughs>
0: So, you know Aram, I'm mm-hmm. So, I didn't bring him this year. Because I do I indeed.
1: Him. I've had so much fun with him. You did. In the past. Yeah.
0: Yep, yep. <laughs> uh, we, we didn't bring um, him this year. We brought Roman and Gypsy because they needed the training and he didn't. Sure. But he had an issue the first year that we had him with getting his nails trimmed, mm-hmm. which is a huge one for so many dog owners. Oh, yeah. The dog hated to have his nails done. So, Rich knew all these ninja holds. so well, I can get in there quickly and do it. Yeah. And we were, you know, asking everybody's advice that we could. We're like, you know, we need help with this. And people, you know, well, you get the, the sandpaper. And you teach him And I'm like oh, That's not going to happen Well you teach him To give you his paw Okay yeah, yep, yeah. He was good with that But you bring the up. Until <laughs> yeah, yeah He was okay with that
1: Until, until
0: Right, right? <laughs> and, uh, and it was just nuts I remember we were Actually at a workshop We had a trainer friend You know They're teaching We had a groomer there. And so, you know, she was giving us tips on, you know, which clippers to get, which, you know, that's going to cut it easier. Mm -hmm. And I said to the the trainer that we had at the workshop, I'm like, you want to give us a hand with this? Yeah. And he says, no,
1: I'm not going near that dog. (laughs) Thanks, but no. Right? I'm
0: like, gee, thanks. So that was over the weekend. And we were just, this was years ago, right? So we were just introduced to Casey's stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, you don't know what a Malinois is, for, for if you're listening here. It's a set you, of teeth
1: attached to a brown dog. It's right? very it, hyperactive. It's whenever yeah. alligators
0: and kangaroos have babies yeah. together.
1: <laughs> and, and, and he was,
0: you know, he, he likes to bite um, for fun. Yeah. But he was. what purpose. Uh, right? And, yeah. and he's a very, he's a strong dog. He's only like 65 pounds, but he is 65 oh, yeah. pounds of pure muscle. So I'm like, you know, we're going to try this So Monday morning.